Thanks for listening to the podcast of Hope Church in East Hampton, Connecticut. Our mission is to love God, love people, and serve the world. To find out more about Hope Church, be sure to check out our website at cthope.com. Here we are. It's so good to see you guys again. And uh, I want to start this week as we're talking about giving up on Christmas. Uh, I think for some of us, if you're like me, sometimes one of the things that make you want to give up on Christmas is, you know, you love your family, but family can be hard, right? Family can be a little bit difficult, and maybe going into this season, one of the things that you're struggling with is, oh my goodness, I do not want to have to go through the drama again. So I thought we'd do a quick dysfunctional family quiz related to the holidays, and you know, I'm not a psychologist, but I have taken a psychology course in college, and I feel very strongly in the appropriateness of the results of this test. So here we go. We're going we're gonna to start here with, with the first question. Should show up in the slide as well, but the Christmas brunch is running late, and something smells like it might be burning. Your family, A, gets angry, starts slinging old crescent rolls and loudly complaining about the food. B, gets passive-aggressive. You know, Darlene, if you'd like me to help with the food next year, I'd be happy to cook it on time. (laughs) C, gets obnoxiously polite, cheers the cook on, chanting that she's the comeback quiche queen. Woohoo! D, everyone gets prepared. Man, you guys knew this was coming. You knew the food was going to be late and burnt, so you all brought in extra protein bars for nourishment. Okay, so get your answer there, and then we're going to go on to question two. The kids are waiting for the Christmas, Christmas present unwrapping to begin, and they're getting a little antsy. So, A, they become sugar-crazed because Grandma keeps feeding them uh, Christmas-colored M&Ms to try to distract them. B, the uncles and aunts take the kids outside to play a, football, a game of football. I'm from the South, so I can say aunts, not aunts. Um, so some, the, the, all the relatives, they decide we're going to go out and play football, but of course Dave says we got to do tackle football, and so the four-year-old loses a tooth, no, you're just shy of the first touchdown, it's not going well. <laughs> C, everyone gives in and says, oh, well, who cares, just give the kids their presents early and then they'll stop complaining. Or D, the parents start threatening that Santa will not only cancel this year's presents, but retroactively revoke the last five years of presents if you can't behave for just one more hour. (laughs) Three, okay, we'll get your answer for that. And then my third question here. When you go to open your Christmas presents, A, your relatives have gotten you a nice sweater that's classy but definitely not your style, but it was 50% off. B, everything is handmade and makes you feel like a jerk because you got everyone gift cards. C, your gift is clearly a re-gift. In other words, it is someone else's reject, and you know it. Or D, your gift is a coupon for a hug or possibly dish cleaning, which you know you'll end up doing anyway. All right, last question here. When your family sits to watch the Christmas movie, you know, just some some great bonding time together, A, is there anything else to watch aside from a Christmas story? I mean, that's what just plays on repeat. Or B, elf, elf forever. Gotta be, gotta be Elf. C, Die Hard. Maybe some, oh, all right, all right. <laughs> Didn't expect that to be quite as popular, but here we are. 
D, the hallmarkier, the better. Man, give me sappy, cheesy plots. <laughs> I'm getting booed off the stage. Or E, your family eschews all things modern and technology related, and so you don't watch a show. You just sit watching the crackling fire and listening to three-part harmony as you sing together. Now, I'm going to tell you, if you answered mostly A's and B's, your family is probably somewhat dysfunctional. But I'm also going to tell you if, you, if you answered mostly C's and D's, your family is also somewhat dysfunctional. <laughs> no matter which way you play this quiz, all of us go home to families or friend groups that are somewhat dysfunctional, right? And I think that's part of the point. I used to think as a kid that maybe there was some elusive family out there that just had this perfect, perfect Christmas where there was no conflict and there was no passive-aggressive and there was... And it's just not there, right? And so sometimes going into the holiday seasons can be difficult. And maybe you're stressed out by that. And maybe if you're perfectly honest, if you're being really blunt, you kind of wish you could pick who was coming to Christmas dinner and who was going to stay home this year, right? Because if so-and-so wasn't there, you think, man, there'd be a lot less drama, a lot less for me to deal with. And it leads me to my message today because, you know, you think about Jesus, and I'm like, of all people, Jesus, a perfect absolutely perfect, and surely he's looking around at his family and being like, oh my gosh, they're so messed up, right? And, he, and he's totally justified in saying that. And you could say when Jesus would probably want to avoid the difficult people at his family gathering. And yet, if you're here, you probably already know that the reason we celebrate the season of Jesus coming as a baby is that Jesus precisely came into the mess. He never tried to avoid the brokenness, the, the mess, the, um, the mistakes or the sinful people around him. He intentionally came and became one of us to live among us. And that is the message of Christmas. And in, 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 in fact, there's people that not only would, you, you would think Jesus wouldn't even invite to his family dinner, but there's people in Jesus' lineage that are, are pulled out in the story of Matthew um, that are kind of surprising. People that you might think, man, if I were telling the story of, of my heritage and the people I was related to, I'd probably just leave those people out, right? Um, I'm Jesus, I have, a, like if Jesus is saying this, he's like, hey, I have a reputation to maintain and I need to make sure that like my, my predecessors make me look good. Um, as a side, like, so my husband, Jeff Burr, you probably, I don't know if you've ever seen me and my husband together because he's always running around chasing my kids and I'm always like off talking to somebody. So, um, but when I got married uh, to Jeff Burr, my uncle called me and he said, are you related to Aaron Burr? Is that, is that what's happening? And I, you know, if you know Aaron Burr, the, the infamous uh, traitor. And so, you know, for my, my in-laws swear that we are not in fact related to Aaron Burr. But, but I'm saying if you, if it's someone like that that you're not sure that you really want to be associated with, then I mean, you may not tell people that you're related to that person, right? You might rather pick someone like a celebrity that you really admire and, and you'd be proud to say that you're related to them. Um, but here in the story of Matthew, in the, in the very first section of the Christmas story, we have what's called the genealogy, which is just a record of all the people that Jesus is related to. And in this Christmas story, um, in this Christmas heritage, you're going to notice that Matthew intentionally includes four women that others might not have invited to the Christmas dinner, much less into the genealogy. And these four people are Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba the women of the lineage of Christ. So why are these names significant? First of all, you should know that um, 
women were usually not in the genealogy. Much like today where, where um, a woman usually gets married and takes her husband's last name, a, a genealogy would have been based on the male, uh, the male lineage of, um, of generations. And so the fact that these women are in here at all tells us something. It makes us say, okay, I need to stop and pay attention about why these women are included. Uh, Matthew went out of his way to do so. And I think one thing that Matthew might be saying in this is, honestly, um, despite what, what maybe um, we think, you know, you look at the Bible and you see a lot of, of books written by men and, and stories about males in the Bible, but I believe that, that God, throughout the scriptures, is also making this powerful point that women were never meant to be excluded from the family of Christ or the kingdom of God. And so this is this important message for us to realize um, that there's a value to women, and, and Matthew is very intentionally making that point. But also, if you look at these, um, at these women, um, and by the way, when you see exceptions in the Bible, I think you always should pay attention, because I think sometimes God tells us more about his heart through the exceptions than, than through the apparent rule. And what I mean by that is an awful lot of times you, you might look at the rule and think this is, what, this is what we're supposed to do and how it's supposed to work and God is always like subverting what we think is, is supposed to happen. And so whenever you see an exception in the Bible, pay attention to why it's there. Pay attention to what God might be saying about his heart and his character through that exception. But God is also the God of the disempowered and the disenfranchised and the discarded and the disgraced and the women that are included in this genealogy are, aside from the fact that they're women, they also have interesting pasts, okay? At least two of them were foreigners, not, not native to the, the Israelite community, and that may not seem like a big deal, but um, in the Old Testament, God really made a point to have his people be separate from the surrounding nations, partly because he wanted them to be separate from the, the practices that, um, that God detested that were, that were part of these other cultures that he wanted his, his people to remain faithful to him. And so he wanted them to, um, to stay true to him in that way. So, so sometimes the idea of, of a, an outside culture might have seemed um, a little scandalous to, to be included in this, in this story. Although God makes it clear, and maybe part of what Matthew's doing here is reminding us once again that, that God coming, that Jesus was not just coming for the Jewish people, but for all people, right? For the, for the Gentiles as well as the Jews, and that has always been part of the plan. And may, maybe Matthew was reminding us a little bit of that as well. Um, but just like the people we struggle to spend time with around the holidays, the holidays, the people with rough edges and broken histories and annoying habits, we might just prefer that Matthew left Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba out of the story, but he didn't. And so today, even it, maybe it doesn't seem like the most Christmassy of Christmas stories, but I want to look for a minute at these four women and their stories and see what it might tell us about, um, about God's story and what, how it might shape our own, uh, our own decision to, to say yes to God and to not give up on Christmas and not give up on God's story in our lives. So we're going to start with Tamar. And I'd like to tell you that her story starts out like a Hallmark movie, much like Tom said last week, with all the garland everywhere and just happy lights, and it doesn't. It begins with her husband dying because God said he was wicked. I don't know why. Again, God is a little vague sometimes in, in the Bible, and I wish he'd be a little more specific, but he's not. So here we are. Tamar is, is, is widowed, or, or we see her um, all alone, early on in the story. She was the daughter-in-law of Judah, and Judah was the son of Jacob, who was the son of Isaac and the son of Abraham. So that was the, the patriarch of Judaism. And so Judah was one of the 12 of the 12 tribes of Israel. 
And he had three sons. One was named Ur, one was Onan, and one was Shelah. And we see that Ur has died. And so here's where it gets really awkward. And this is not a Christmas story. If you want to avoid awkward at your family Christmas gathering, do not share this story. It's not, not one I would share. Um, so Judah, in this, in this time, in this culture, if, um, if someone was unable to, if their, if their husband died, then the brother-in-law could actually help to fulfill the, the, his dead brother's duty and help to carry on the lineage of his brother. And so if you want to read between the lines here, the verse tells us that Judah said to his son, you need to fulfill your duty to Tamar as a brother-in-law to raise up offspring for him. Again, I'll let you fill in all the gaps. Um, so he was supposed to help carry on the family, and he decided not to. He disobeyed, and he also died. Okay, so the story is getting worse. And so Judah said, you know what? When my youngest son gets older, he will help carry on the family line. Don't worry, I promise everything will be fine. But the son grows up, and Judah does not follow through on that promise. And so the really short story is that Tamar realizes that nothing is happening, and so she actually disguises herself as a, a lady of the night and ends up having children by her father-in-law by, by tricking him. Okay? This sounds awful. Um, Interestingly, um, after she, she, he finds out that she's pregnant, and of course he's, he's responsible also, he does not realize this, um, she was clever, so she had taken his um, basically like um, identifying artif- articles of his, and so when he questions her, when he finds out she's pregnant, he says, we're going to have you killed. That's what we're going to do, which seems a little hypocritical, in my opinion. Um, and she says, oh, by the way, I am pregnant because of the man who owns these. And he says, ah, oh, okay. So in the end, what is interesting is that Judah says, Tamar, he says, she is more righteous than I. She is more righteous than I. And this is the closest we get kind of from a, an, to an apology maybe from him. Um, but it also forces us to look a little more closely at the story, right? Because at first glance, you might look at this story and think, oh my goodness, she is just a tart, and why on earth would you do that? And th- why would this story even be in the Bible? And I'll be honest, I read this story when I was like 11, because I was like, I'm just reading through Genesis. Like, you know, this is a good, how I'm reading the Bible. I, I couldn't get into any trouble reading that, right? And then I was like, I don't know if I should be reading this story. This is, um, Mom, just, did you know this was in here? It makes us look a little differently at Tamar. I think I, I think I look at her story a little bit differently today than I used to because truly her decision, even though it may have been seemed misguided, but it flowed from this sense that justice was not happening. Justice was not being served. It was being thwarted. And as a woman who had little say in the things that were happening around her and very little influence over, over her own life, she made a bold decision. She made a bold decision, and in fact, her, her father-in-law says she was more righteous than he was. And as a result, she ended up having twins, Perez, oh my goodness, where, Perez and Zara, and Perez is in the family line of Jesus. So it's an interesting story, but it is a reminder that sometimes there's, there's these interesting stories, and God still uses the crazy, interesting stories to build to the, the larger story of redemption that he's doing, creating for all of us. Sometimes we have to look a little differently maybe at some stories than we used to. 
So that's Tamar's awkward story and how she ended up in the genealogy of Christ. And then we have Rahab. And maybe you've heard of the story of Rahab and she was living in the city of Jericho and the Israelites showed up at Jericho and this was after they had wandered in the wilderness. God brought them out of Egypt. They wandered in the wilderness and they um, were sending spies into Jericho, which was part of the promised land that they were going to be, uh, God promised to give them. And so Rahab was living in that, in that community and these spies went into Jericho, the Israelite spies, and she, she decided to hide these spies. Now it was known that she was, um, it, it was known that she was definitely um, living a sinful life. Um, she was known for promiscuity. That was her, probably her career. But she says this, and this is very interesting. When, when the spies came to her land, she said, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God, God who is in heaven above and on earth below. And so in an interesting way, Rahab exhibits, she recognizes, she recognizes that God has put a fear of the Israelites on her people. And she also attributes it to this God. And she, in, in this in this declaration, she makes, she's acknowledging that she believes that God is God, that he is the Lord of heaven and earth. And she makes this bold request of the spies. She said, if I hide you, if I keep you from being found out and killed, will you in exchange spare my life and the life of my family when you destroy this place? And so she believes. She believes so much that she's like, I know this is coming and I'm asking you for, for, um, for rescue. And they do. The spies acknowledge her. And so when um, when the, you can read about the wall of Jericho and the Joshua and the people marching around and the walls crumbling. But when they do, there's a note that says that Rahab was spared. Rahab was saved. And it's interesting because it is believed that this is the same Rahab that is in the genealogy of Christ, the Rahab who was the mother of Boaz, who marries the woman from our next story, Ruth. And so again, you have this, this woman, Rahab, who makes a bold decision, and she has this revelation, and she has this faith. And even though she's an outsider, she's completely brought into the family of God, and she becomes part of this lineage. And Ruth, Ruth is another amazing, interesting woman. And uh, one of two women uh, who have books named after them in the Bible, Esther is the other one. And Ruth, we've, we've talked about her a little bit, but she, um, she was also a foreigner. She was a Moabitess. And what ends up happening, this, her story begins almost with like um, a Christmas nativity story in reverse. So there's a man named Elimelech, and he has, is married to Naomi, and they are Israelites, and there's such a bad famine that they are actually leaving, they flee from Bethlehem to Moab, and they are trying to just find a place to live and survive. And while they're there, they find wives in that area for their, son, for their two sons. Once again, it's like it's almost like a Disney story, man. There's tragedy in all the Disney stories. There's tragedies in all these stories. So a poor Ruth is one of the. She marries one of these sons, and sure enough, shortly after, um, both Elimelech and the the two sons of Ruth die, and so Ruth and Naomi and her and the um, the other daughter-in-law are just there and destitute. And so Ruth, uh, sorry, Naomi says, "I'm going to go back to my people. I'm going to go back to to Bethlehem." 
and the daughter-in-laws start to go with her, and she says, no, go back to your people. You don't need to uproot your lives and completely change everything. You know, I'll go on my own. You guys can, you guys can still have good lives. Go and be married and be free. And one of the daughters-in-law says, okay, and she leaves. But Ruth, Ruth says, no, I'm not leaving. I'm not leaving you at all. I'm going to stay with you. And she says the words that maybe you've heard in Ruth 1, 16 and 17. She says to Ruth, where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. That's a pretty big promise, right? And it's a pretty big sign of her faithfulness and her commitment to, um, to Ruth. And it's also, I believe, a sign, uh, again, of her own faith and her own decision to commit. Um, she's leaving behind her ways and her practices and whatever else, and she's saying, I'm going to wholly commit to this God that you follow and you serve. And so Naomi and Ruth stay together, and this is how um, Ruth ends up working in this field who be- that belongs to this guy, Boaz. And Boaz, I should say, is a, is a righteous man as well. And you can tell because he, he has a field and he intentionally allows the people who are poor in the area to come and glean the extra, um, the extra harvest from the field. And that was a, a practice that God had set in place to, uh, to help people who were in poverty. And so Boaz is this righteous man, maybe similar to Joseph that, that Tom talked about last week. And so Boaz realizes their destitution and he ends up um, becoming what they call a kinsman redeemer and he redeems... Uh, Ruth and ends up marrying her and that is how she also ends up becoming part of the lineage of Christ in this increasingly crazy crazy story and then our final story is Uriah's wife in, in the genealogy you'll see it as Uriah's wife and the reference here is to Bathsheba and the fact that Matthew calls her Uriah's wife actually intentionally alludes to the scandal that Bathsheba is known for, which is another very interesting thing. Like Matthew just makes no qualms about pulling out all these, all the parts, airing all the parts of the story that normally we would not want to be aired. So Bathsheba is known usually as the woman that King David committed adultery with. And I will say this, that in, in the story, we often hear this story and we only get David's perspective, right? We understand what David does, his motivations, and, and how the whole affair comes to be, but we really don't get Bathsheba's story. And so a lot of people might say, oh, well, it takes two to, and I have to say, you know, he's in a position of authority, and how much say did she really have in this whole situation? I don't know. It almost seems like in that particular story, um, her voice, her perspective is sidelined. But Matthew draws her story back out. He draws her story back out by putting her right in the middle of this genealogy. He didn't need to do that, but he does. And I want to share with you quickly a story about Bathsheba that you may not know, a story that's aside from this, you know, the big scandal that we, that we hear about. In the book of 1 Kings chapter 1, we see that King David is on his deathbed. And essentially, he's, he's on his way to die. And even though he's been called a man after God's own heart, and he was arguably one of the greatest kings Israel had in their history, he still had some, he still had some flaws and failures. And one of those was that he struggled as a parent. He struggled to, to rebuke and to challenge his sons and his children. And some of this comes out. You know, you may have heard of Absalom, his son, who tried to take over his kingdom. And here in this story, there's another son who's trying to, to, uh, planning to take over the throne after David dies. And so here's how Bathsheba comes into this story. 
there was a prophet named Nathan, and this prophet Nathan comes to Bathsheba, and he says this. He says to Solomon's mother Bathsheba, Have you not heard that Adonijah, the son of Haggith, has become king, and our Lord David knows nothing about it? Now then, let me advise how you can save your own life and that of your son Solomon. Go into the king David and say to him, My lord the king, did you not swear to me your servant? Surely Solomon your son will be king after me and will sit on my throne. Why then has Adonijah become king? And while you are still talking to the king, I will come in and add my word to what you have said. Basically, he's like, I'll corroborate your story. We'll make sure that David understands the severity of this. So what does Bathsheba do? Much like we've been talking about kind of in this, in this series so far, um, sometimes we're confronted with this, with this decision like Joseph was, are, are we going to say yes? When we're presented with something that sounds crazy, it sounds difficult, it sounds uncomfortable, are we going to say yes? And Bathsheba, she says yes. And she has this almost like this Queen Esther moment where she has to go into King David and she has to confront him. And I don't know how she's feeling about that. But she says boldly, My lord the king, all of the eyes of Israel are on you to learn from you who will sit on the throne after you. Otherwise, as soon as my lord the king is laid to rest with his ancestors, I and my son Solomon will be treated as criminals. And it may seem like a footnote, like a minor story in the midst of all these other stories in the Bible, but you have to know that Bathsheba's boldness and her courage to go to King David caused him to to make a a statement, to officially declare Solomon to be king and to proclaim that so that Solomon ended up ruling after him. And this is the Solomon who built the temple for God. And this is the same Solomon also who becomes part of the family lineage of Christ. And so, whether it's Tamar or Rahab or Ruth or even Bathsheba's courageous decision to say yes in maybe what seems like a very small way, all of those yeses built on the others to become part of the story that God was writing. In fact, all of these women and their yeses would ultimately culminate in in the yes of the final woman in the genealogy that's listed, Mary, and Mary's yes. And we're going to talk more about Mary in a couple of weeks But it's interesting, it makes me think, because we look back today in the Christmas story and we look at people like Mary and Joseph, we we say, wow, wow, just to think how immeasurably different our lives would be if those people didn't say yes to God, right? And yet, Mary and Joseph would have looked back and had all these people in their genealogy, not not always the people that you'd think of, the, you know, the, we think of certain people as like saints or holy or um, these beautiful, perfect stories. And yet they were people, just regular people, people who made mistakes like me and you. And they said yes to God too. And their yeses impacted Mary and Joseph's yes. And so we can just look back and we can just see throughout eternity all these people saying yes to God over and over and over again, long before God has asked us to say yes to him. And so uh, there's a couple takeaways here that I want to leave us with as we wrap up. The first I would say is this. Maybe the story, um, maybe as you think through this story and you think about these people that maybe you kind of had assumptions about and maybe you kind of pegged them or you had uh, put them in a box or you kind of labeled them and maybe reading through these stories today, you, you look at them a little differently. And I would challenge you, maybe take that with you into your, your family Christmas this year or your, your friend Christmas. Don't be too quick to give up on friends and family this season. Remember that everyone has a backstory that you may not know about. 
In fact, I would challenge you, you know, I, I think sometimes, um, how often is it that I'm feeling insecure, I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling angry about something, and so that shows up in my behaviors, right? Maybe, maybe someone doesn't even realize the kind of mourning that I have had, and so I might say something snappy, and if someone were to stop and say, hey, I wonder why she did that, I wonder what's driving that behavior, you know, that, that could go a long way. And so maybe this Christmas, you look around at the people that you're interacting with and you, and you become a, a, um, inquisitive and curious and say, I wonder how I could get to know this person better. I wonder what about their backstory. Maybe, maybe you ask them a question about their history and just find out more about where they're coming from. I know it doesn't make things perfect. I know it doesn't solve all the difficult people. Um, but maybe we just go in with that mindset of Christ and say, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit in the mess. I'm going to embrace these people, and I'm going to ask God for love for those people. And the second takeaway I would say is that when you feel like giving up on Christmas or when you feel like giving up on, on yes to God, I want you to, to think back to the people in your life, to all the people who have said yes before you, that brought you to the place where you are today, that brought you to the feet of Jesus, that brought you into relationship with him, that brought you goodness and hope and courage. And maybe it's not even people that you're related to, but people that you can look at in your life and say, I would not be here today if it weren't for this person. I would not be standing here today if it weren't for so-and-so. And maybe if we look around and we look at even the little yeses that people around us have made to God over the years, it will give us a boldness and a courage to continue to say yes to him even when we feel like giving up as well. I want to end with this last verse uh, from Galatians 6, 8 through 10. And this is just something I want to, uh, hopefully you can hold on to um, in this season and in the seasons to come. It says, Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. And verse 9 is what I want you to hold on to. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. At the proper time you will reap a harvest if you do not give up. And you maybe won't see it all in your lifetime. And that's sobering. But God's going to do something through your yeses that is powerful. Let's pray. God, thank you that you are the God who never gives up on us, the God that always shows up, um, the God that embraces even the people that have sketchy pasts, and then um, whether in the past or currently, God, that you're the God who sees us and loves us and does not ask us to be perfect in order to be near you. I just pray, God, that as we leave today and we go out into our holiday season, that you'd give us courage to see people with your eyes and your compassion. Um, and God, that you'd give us strength and courage to continue to say yes to you because of all the people who have also said yes already. Amen.